0: Coming up this hour, three ways to love the neighbor you hate. And then we're joined by Dave Ferguson and Eddie Yoon of Justice Deposits. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. And I know that Brian kept my secret for me, but I did have knee surgery yesterday, and so I'm drugged up today, so... It's going to be a good show. Today's show is either either going to be hysterical or horrific. Either way, (laughs) y'all are in for a treat. Real quickly, uh, some of the particulars. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Common Good Talk. Those are great places to interact with us, and the articles that we share, or you can send us a private message if you have ideas or thoughts about previous shows, future shows, all that's fair game. But before we dive into this article from the only... Dave Ferguson. Actually, he's probably not the only Dave Ferguson. Probably not. So plenty plenty <laughs> of Dave Ferguson's. We're actually having him on later in the show with Eddie Yoon to talk about an initiative that I'm so excited about called Justice Deposits. But Dave actually wrote what I think is a really practical, really helpful article, three mm-hmm. ways to love the neighbor you hate. Before we dive into that, though, how are you doing, Brian From?
1: I'm doing well. The uh, sun is shining and it's Friday, so you can't complain. But uh, beyond that, I mentioned this yesterday. Today is my 21st wedding
0: anniversary. That's so
1: right. A big day. And it's always fun. You know, when it's your anniversary, it, it's a great time to like look back and uh, just kind of celebrate. Now we're not in Mexico like last year on our anniversary. So that's right. too bad. But uh, yeah, so, you know, a day to celebrate my uh, my lovely wife, Carrie, and it's our 21 years. Like, I don't like our, our marriage is old enough to drink now. So it's, <laughs> <laughs> so it's one of those moments where you're like, 21 years. That sounds so old, but it's uh,
0: uh, 21 years and still smiling. That's what we say.
1: So happy anniversary to us. And so, yeah, that makes
0: for a good day. It's pretty wild. We haven't been doing the show that long, but when we started you know, you were about to have your 19th anniversary. That's right. right. And I remember you, like, really talking up, like, oh, man, when it gets to 20. And then you actually had 20, and we talked Mm -hmm. about it, you know, pre and post on the show. And now that I mean, you're celebrating 21, I don't know. And your daughter got her license somewhere. Yeah. (laughs) Like, you've hit some real, some real milestones, man. Congratulations to you guys. I mean. Thank you. Thank you. More more to her, I imagine, for putting up with you, right? That's uh,
1: obvious. Obviously. obviously.
0: (laughs) Okay. So I mentioned uh, Dave Ferguson. Many of you are familiar with that name. He's not only uh, my boss, but he's also pastor at Community Christian Church, a leader of the New Thing Church Planning Network. He's a president of the Exponential Church Planning Conference. He and Eddie and a whole team of other people have started a really wonderful initiative called Justice Deposits, which we're going to talk about coming up next. But every once in a while, he also somehow finds time to blog. He's got a book that came out that we're talking about next week called Bless, which is fantastic. But I just this kind of caught my attention. So rather than beginning the day, like we often have with just some Mm -hmm. headlines, this to me, it just felt like it was timely. And Dave's coming on the show later, uh, later in the in the hour. So I thought this was helpful. Three ways to love the neighbor you hate. You want to get us into it? Yeah. Dave starts this way. And like you said, man, this every now and then you see people like him or Ed
1: Stetzer who crank out so much content and have so many awesome ideas like this justice deposits we're about to turn to talk about. Is like is kind of mind blowing, both in its yeah. simplicity and the difference it can make. And you're like, man, and I'm not saying he thought of it, but he was part of it. Yes. Uh, and so that's just unbelievable. Anyway, Dave writes, loving your neighbor isn't always easy. That's just plain true, which is just a statement that for a lot of us, we just need to go. Yeah. It's true. It's true. Uh, And so he goes on to tell the story about him and his wife, uh, Sue, moving into their first house and then getting new neighbors and the new neighbors uh, being difficult. Right. Their first time they met the new neighbors was watching the police escort one of them out of the house in a drug bus. He writes they were hard to love neighbors. You got anyone who lives near you that is really hard to love, he asks. They might be too loud or keep and keep you up at night. Maybe your neighbors don't take care of their lawn, create an eyesore for the whole community. Perhaps they're rude and once yelled at your kids, or maybe they have very different political views and they love to tell you about it or wave a flag or place a sign. Neighbors can often be hard to love. And then Jesus comes along and says this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second is love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, and so Dave goes on to say, uh so how do you love a neighbor that you hate uh, first remember that love is not a feeling love is an action we all have the ability to act in ways that are contrary to our feelings so the challenge is acting in a way that is consistent with the teaching of jesus despite how we feel he says i want to help you act in a loving way even when you're feeling hatred towards that neighbor and he References the book uh, that he and his brother wrote called "Bless" that you said, and now he's going to give you some pointers about how to love the neighbors you meet. But I, I find this both freeing and just honest, right? Like we don't, uh, a we don't always like our neighbors, and b love is sometimes in action. It's not always a feeling or only a feeling. And I think when you put those two together, what you realize is there's no out clause. Jesus doesn't say love your neighbor. As long as they're lovable, as long as you like them. And so I find this really helpful. But that setup is uh, really important to grasp.
0: Yeah. And I think it's interesting, too, because a lot of people might find even the title of the blog Really comforting, like to hear a pastor say, "How to love the neighbor you hate." People, I can almost feel people like, "Oh, he said hate." Oh, yes, like, like there's uh, sometimes a sense of like, well, pastors they just magically love everybody, and the more that you get right. into the weeds, like, no, they, we have the same obnoxious neighbors, the same difficult people to love. So I like how it begins first, really simply with wave. Right, mm-hmm. the first gesture of friendship can be as simple as a wave to say hello. My friend Kim had a neighbor named Dan that was very difficult to love. When Kim moved in next door to Dan. One of the guys helping Kim move accidentally drove his car onto Dan's yard. That was all it took for Dan to decide he hated Kim, and that made Dan very hard to love. But Kim was determined, despite not feeling the love, every time he would see Dan, he would wave at him and say, hi, Dan. At first, Dan responded with a one-finger salute. (laughs) In time, (laughs) he would only roll his eyes at Kim when he'd wave. Eventually, Dan began to wave back at Kim. It took six months of waving and saying, hi, Dan. But Kim and Dan became friends. Not only did they become friends, but their Mm -hmm. families also became friends and then he quotes here from 1 Corinthians 10:24 no one should seek their own good but the good of others what is the simplest thing you could do to see the good of your neighbor you may not like your neighbors but a simple wave hello might be just enough love to give birth to a friendship i still so appreciate the practicality of that because we tend to think it needs to be these big being mm-hmm. like made for hallmark tv movie type acts of generosity and kindness You're like nope just Wave at them when you're bringing in your trash cans or when you're both shoveling the walk at the same time. Like you'd That's be right. amazed at how far that can go. Yep. Number
1: two, he says, pray. It's Chester, GK, GK Chesterton that reminded us the Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also to love our enemies, probably because they generally know that they are the same people. The Bible <laughs> explains the path to loving our enemies when it says in Matthew five forty four, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Yeah. Over the last eight years, I've used what I call the blessed practices. Uh, These simple practices are a way to love our neighbor and make up the acrostic B-L-E-S-S. And so he gives all five, but number one is begin with prayer. Every day I write the word bless at the bottom of my journal, he writes. Then I write the names of my neighbors and pray for them. Praying for your enemies is what Jesus told us to do. You may not feel the love, but you can act in love by praying for those who are hard to love neighbors.
0: Yeah, I like this last one, serve. He says, last week, a big orange moving truck pulled into the driveway next door, signaling that our new neighbors had just arrived. It's the house on your right as you face our home. I don't know if there'll be people I like or people who get under my skin. That's how it is with neighbors. If they turn out to be hard to love, the Bible offers a rather interesting challenge. This is from Romans 12. If your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heat burning coals in their head. Do not Uh, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The phrase heap up burning coals in their heads leaves us in the 20th century with the uncomfortable image of hot charcoal being dumped on our enemies' heads. Is that right? Not at all. (laughs) Doris Jenka offers uh, this first century explanation. It was custom back then to have a fire in their home in a stove. This is the fire they would use for heating the house and for cooking their food. It was normally kept constantly burning. However, on occasions, for whatever reason, the fire would go out. And when that would happen, a member of the family would take the stove to a neighbor or friend and ask for live coals of fire to be placed in the stove. They would then use these live coals to get their fire going again. Once Mm. the burning coals were placed in the stove, the family members would then lift the stove onto their head as was the custom of the day and walk back home. Sometimes others seeing the need would also put burning coals in the stoves. As they returned in this way, they would help their neighbor by literally heaping coals of fire on their head. When we understand this, we clearly see the reference is not a punishment, but rather a challenge to serve and help your neighbor. I don't know about you, man. I love, I love that explanation. I know we're out of time, but like any final thoughts as a pastor who lives like in a real neighborhood with real neighbors, in like how we can love people who are difficult to love. Yeah,
1: I think the takeaway is not everyone is lovable. Not not everyone's yeah. easy to love. And his his uh, uh, suggestions here are just so simple—a way. A uh, a service, a prayer. I can pray for people that I don't love. The Bible tells me to do that. And so I think, A, acknowledging not everyone's easy to love, and then B, saying, but we're still called to love, and here's some easy ways to do it. If we're really serious about this, this article is very helpful.
0: Yep, and it's posted up on our Facebook page. I highly recommend you check it out and let us know what you think. Coming up next, as I mentioned earlier, Dave Ferguson and Eddie Yoon are going to talk about a new initiative called Justice Deposits. You're not going to want to miss that conversation. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. We are thrilled to have not one, but two very special guests, Dave Ferguson and Eddie Yoon. Welcome to the show, gentlemen.
2: Thanks for having us. Mm-hmm.
0: Hey, it's hello, our pleasure. Hello. Let's let's start with you, Dave. If you would just introduce yourself to everybody, and then Eddie, when he's done, you can jump in and introduce yourself to our audience.
2: Sure, um, I'm the lead pastor at Community Christian Church in Chicago, and also get to oversee uh, what's happening with our New Thing Network, which is a global church planning network, and a few other things. Uh, I'm also in a small group with um, with Eddie, who's going to be introduced next. That's right.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, it, that's, that's been uh, an amazing thing in the pandemic. has been small group, and especially mm-hmm. with Dave. So uh, hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Eddie Yoon. I'm the uh, founder of a think tank and growth strategy uh, consultancy called Eddie Would Grow. Uh, prior to that, I was a senior partner at the Cambridge Group, which is uh, another growth strategy firm that was owned by Nielsen. And uh, I've written pretty extensively about uh, consumers and growth and how to create new categories uh, with the Harvard Business Review over the last 10 years or so.
1: Awesome! It's great. We're super excited to have you both on. And Dave, I want to start with you. What, what we really want to talk about uh, is this program or this initiative, I should say, called Justice Deposits. I hadn't heard of this and did a lot of reading today and find it fascinating. Could you uh, educate our listeners a little bit? What are the Justice Deposits?
2: Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what, uh, Brian. Why don't I? I'll kind of tell the story what led up to it, and we'll let Eddie educate us. Perfect. Mm-hmm. I think it was really kind of the post George Floyd murder. That as a church, um, one of the things that we did at Community Christian, um, we have a our new thing network. So I got a hold of Quentin Mumphrey, who's a part of our new thing network, lives on the south side, a pastor there. And, and we got together and we did a whole talk about the black experience because our predominantly white church, so they could understand what it's like for for them to go, you know, as they, if, this is the first time, but over and over and over again. Right. And uh, we did that. And Ricky Brown is another guy in our um, just network, uh, who's down at Hyde Park, uh, he invited me to be a part of one of the peaceful protests, and, and I did that. But I think it was actually in small group, I think, or maybe it's around that that Eddie and I were talking and going, to, It feels like there's got to be something more we could actually do. Mm-hmm. There's got to be a way that we could actually, you know, I mean, it's you know, the conversations, the, the march that's a good thing. And it was Eddie that began to explain to me. Some, some research that he began to do on actually black-owned banks and how, honestly, that one of the, the, the biggest things that we could actually do is kind of put our money where our mouth is mm-hmm. and how could we uh, help uh, minority families and minority businesses have access to capital. And maybe that'd be a good segue to Eddie because Eddie did the research yeah. on how many black-owned banks there are and a number of things.
0: Yeah, get us into the weeds a little bit, Eddie. What what are some of the things that you found in your research?
3: Yeah, no, this is. um, I think it feels very like much like uh, you know, growing up in Hawaii. There's a lot of solar panels Mm -hmm. that exist out here, and that uh, the ability to capture all this energy. That's been generated with uh, social justice around, you know, African American injustices, and as Dave said, the murder of George Floyd. Like, how do we capture that and store right. it as potential energy that can be useful for the future? And I think that's kind of the whole idea of justice deposits. And the the theory of it goes is that, um, you know, home equity is roughly a third of the average household's net worth, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but African Americans uh, are denied mortgages at rates that are twice as high, and wow. when they get them, they pay more for them than they should, uh, regardless of their FICA scores and whatnot. And so um, one of the things was interesting from a, you know, as a consultant who's dealt with large companies, it's very hard to change the mindset in how big companies work. But in this situation, if we actually shifted resources to these either uh, Black-run or uh, Black-owned banks, that that might actually do the trick because uh, a Black-owned bank, Uh, gives about two thirds of its loans to African-American households versus Mm. mainstream banks. It's just about 1%. And uh, the way that a bank works, right, is they take in deposits and they hopefully, you know, pay a marginal interest rate. And, you know, virtually all banks are paying very little to nothing now. Um, But they loan them out at a higher rate and that's how they make money. Um, And black owned banks are just doing much better about redistributing that access to capital to uh african-american households and so the very simple thing uh, actually came about inspired by netflix which uh in june of last year moved a hundred million of wow. their cash about two percent of cash holdings to these black owned and black run banks as part of a broader effort to uh, fight against systemic injustice and the way that netflix talks about it it was like hey That was kind of rainy day money anyway, which is kind of odd to think about $100 million. (laughs) But (laughs) they weren't going to do anything with it other than just keep it around. And so why not store
1: it at a bank that's actually going to make a difference for the community uh, in African-American households? Yeah. and and Eddie maybe you could take this one you know if if me as a pastor of a church or a business owner or even an individual has their money right now is say in Chase right just the local Chase bank is there any risk in making that move is are you taking on any risk or is this pretty much a zero risk proposition
3: yeah it it's it's a great question and i think with uh for the vast majority of churches if you are moving funds under $250,000 there is zero risk mm. in that the FDIC the government guarantees those funds regardless of what kind of bank it's in. Right. So uh, clearly, you know, African-American owned and run banks fall into that category. And as one of the, uh, my, my uh, a friend of mine, who's a expert in financial services, once said, um, the U.S. government in this regard is so good where if a bank were to fail for whatever reason on a Friday, that the U.S. government would find a buyer on Saturday <laughs> and that you could access your money on a Monday. Like they are not wow. joking around mm. when it comes to the... the uh, full faith and credit of the U.S. government here.
0: Wow. So, so Dave, a question that uh, I know that we probably touched on off air a little bit, but what kind of hurdles have you needed to overcome in this process? Like, have you received any pushback from the pastoral community or the, the larger Christian community? Like, hey, is this really something that we should be delving into? Shouldn't we, like Brian and I, hear often, like just preach the gospel? Like, don't concern yourself with all of these other things. You should you should just be about preaching the gospel. What what, what have those conversations been like? Have you received any pushback or had to overcome? Any hurdles in that regard?
2: Uh, I'd say almost zero. Mm. Wow. I mean, uh, the the only pushback that I think I've gotten is only when it's been misunderstood. So, for example, mm. I think when we initially communicated, because we've done this at Community Christian, we've we've opened up uh, money at uh, or put open up an account, and put money in a, a black-owned bank. Our new thing network, Church Plan Network, we've done the same. Um, I think we're when we we initially began to share with our church that we were doing this, we got a lot of positive feedback. There was a couple emails I got going. Like, um, people said, "I I don't think you should be investing our money." This oh. is, you know, and so I had to explain, "No, we're not investing your money. Right. We simply opened up an account in a different bank, and so we're saving it there. And here's how it's making a bigger difference in the community." And once they understood, people were, "Oh, this is terrific."
0: The more that I learn about justice deposits, Dave. Honestly, I'm struck with this question: like, why have we thought of this sooner? It just feels like every piece of information that y'all publish, I'm like, that just makes perfect sense. Why do you think right now is, is the time this is happening? Why, why don't did, why we think of this sooner?
2: Uh, seriously, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, because I mean, it's so rare that you come across something that is nonpartisan, right. low risk, and high impact. It's right. just um, I mean, maybe maybe it's because not everybody has an Eddie Yoon in their small group. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Look what we could do if you... Um, I, I guess I'll say this, though. I would say, I do think there has been a groundswell of kind of energy and I think pent-up desire and demand hmm. to actually do something um, to reckon with what's, what's been happening in our country uh, as far as the racial divide. And I think maybe that energy has kind of really helped um, kind of us kind of search more for these kind of innovations. Like mm-hmm. what could really make a difference besides more conversations and more marches and that kind of thing.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah.
3: Right. Yeah. Maybe Eddie has some thoughts on that though. I mean. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. It's, we have some data actually that we referenced in the, the Harvard business. Um, I fielded a uh, survey of a thousand people nationally in, you know, just kind of asking about, you know, would you be willing to do this in, at, at a couple of levels? One is, uh, would you just ask the company you work for, would you be willing to move some of your money like Netflix did? Because mm. a lot of companies are doing this. PayPal's moved half a billion dollars. Costco's wow. moved $25 million. Mm. Like it's a little bit of the, you don't want to be the last one that hasn't done this yet. So they're just ask okay. your company is one. Uh, the second is, uh, would you be willing to ask your faith community? And so, you know, One of the interesting things that we found was that uh, the demand for uh, people to want their faith community to do this was pretty much the same, very high, regardless of what type of faith you were, whether you were uh, a, a Christ follower, whether you were uh, a Muslim, a Jewish person, doesn't didn't really matter, actually. So there was a little bit of that interesting dynamic. And then hmm. the other bit that was really quite fascinating was how much this seemed to really spike um, at for people that were below the age of 45. This was really, Mm -hmm. you know, again, I don't want to read too much into it because I don't have complete data with it. But this is one of those things where um, if you were under the age of 45, you were three to four times more likely to either ask your company, your faith community, or move your own money uh, at significant amounts in some uh, situations uh, to this. And so, you know, it could be a generational thing. It could be the moment in time. It could be that you know what? Uh, all the projections are that America is going to be majority minority in 2042. And uh, mm-hmm. that's already happened and happening at mm-hmm. various uh, paces in different parts of the country. And so uh, th- there's any number of these reasons that could be part of it. But uh, I, th- I do think it is one of these rare things where, uh, you know, somebody had to be the tipping point, And when a Netflix did it and a yeah. community does it, it's like, well, well, duh, why shouldn't I do it, too?
1: hmm. Mm-hmm. And Dave, as a pastor, and, and if anyone knows you, you're, you're very connected to especially pastors locally, but also across the nation and having these sorts of conversations. And so I'm curious from your end, uh, pastorally, as you talk to other churches and other pastors, uh, do you feel like something has changed within the church where more of these conversations are happening on a pastoral level of we got to do something instead of just talking? Do you feel like that's going on? And, and what are those conversations like? And are you finding them encouraging?
2: Um, I, I'm going to go, I'm going to go both ways on this one. Cause, um, um, David Kinnaman and Barn have done the research and it doesn't seem like as much is changing as we'd right. like to think. Mm, right. So that saddens me. Yeah. Now, um, on the other hand, the conversations I have are very much like that. So mm. I don't know if it's just, you know, the people that I'm connected with, um, they're very much looking for those kind of, those, those, those kind of expressions, those ways of doing things. I mean, uh, Crossroads Church in Cincinnati, if you're familiar with them, it's one of the largest churches in the country. They, pre pandemic, were probably over 30,000 people. I mean, they're, they fully embraced this. Um, I could name a couple other larger, largest churches in the country that are either, have told me they're either gonna do it or about to do it. Um, I was on Albert Tate's show. You guys probably know Albert. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's young ho. I'm, Literally, this afternoon, texting back and forth with Danielle Strickland, she wants to get on and talk about it. Carrie Newhoff, you know his podcast wants to be on his podcast, talk about it. So it is gaining a lot of traction mm-hmm. amongst amongst some groups, anyway. And um, there's is actually some research. Warren Bird sent me this too. It's fascinating that the larger the church, the more their inclination towards uh, racial diversity. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know what that says, but it says
0: something. Yeah, yeah. No kidding. Now Eddie, you and I have uh, we've had a couple of conversations over coffee, and i've just always been so impressed not only with your intellect but your you have wisdom I think that's paired with that and i I so appreciate that guys like you and Dave have a space to to even connect and dream stuff up like this and I imagine people are listening right now thinking i 'm not a pastor, I barely even consider myself like a church person, but I like thinking strategically about issues in the world like what advice would you give to someone who right now they may be a part of the faith community, but they they've they've never really even considered the possibility of speaking up in a small group like you did. Like, what advice would you give to someone who's got maybe that itch or that that fire? And they're like, man, I, I really feel like my church might benefit from engaging with an idea or principle that no one else has thought of. What, w- what would you say to that person?
3: Yeah. You, you know, I, I would say um, this probably sounds uh, uh, trite, but pray because I now that I think about when your earlier question of why hasn't this happened sooner was. I do think I've spent a good chunk of last years in the summer just feeling frustrated and and, and fearful that this would just keep happening over and over again. And I, wishing for a solution that was almost magical in this regard, right? Of like, yeah. as, as Dave articulated, high impact, low risk, easily accessible for everyone. And, you know, I, I think that's kind of... The way god's math works right it's 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 one plus one doesn't equal two it equals eleven so <laughs> when you pray for those solutions um, they come uh, and I think this is one example of them and my hope is that people will pray for you know an outcome where it's not just a, a major sacrifice for one to help another but it's it's a situation where there's radical abundance which allows you to be radically generous and and that my, my hope is that in this generosity, they understand that um, that's how you bring people to the gospel, right? It's, it's always mm-hmm. been, in, in my opinion, when people are radically generous, that, that 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 feeling and experience, just like when Jesus gave his life for us, is, is yeah. what people get to say. Well, what's going on with you? I don't understand why you're <laughs> behaving this way. Um, fill me in on this. And yeah. so that, that's my hope, is that they see this as a path that God is the God of of amazing solutions that um, can have these high-impact, low-risk situations. And, you know, that it's always through the course of this kind of generosity that you can have the greatest impact for your faith community.
1: too. Absolutely. Um, And, and Dave, as we close this out, someone's listening. They're like, yes, I want to do this. How about next steps? How do I find a bank? How do I get involved in this?
2: um, One of the ways they could do it to access the information right now, if they go to communitychristian.org, slash justice deposits, That's the because this thing is still so brand new. That's where we're holding all the information. Now, there's a point paper that Eddie wrote, and Eddie actually did the research where we took the current, I think it's like existing black-owned banks and kind of made some recommendations where we know, because we've talked to them, how they can have positive experiences. There's also the Harvard Business Review articles on there. Uh, there's other podcasts that are on there. There's a video on there, endorsements, a lot of information there. And even there's a, a way to kind of connect with some of the people on our team. Uh, so we can get you more information, um, and I'll I'll do this too. I mean, my email is Dave Ferguson at communitychristian.org. dot org. Dave Ferguson at communitychristian.org. dot org. And if somebody's listening, going like, "Yeah, I'd like for my church to do something like this," I'll connect you with one of the people on our team, and we'll we'll do our very best to get you the information about it.
0: Awesome. That's awesome. Again, that website is communitychristian dot org slash justice deposits. And just to say it out loud, Dave, Eddie, I am personally so grateful for both of you and the ways that you lead and serve people. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks, Ian. Hey, it's been our pleasure. Thank you. Our pleasure. Mm-hmm. You're listening to the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi friends. Welcome back to the common good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian James from, we are so glad that you are here joining us just now. I gotta be honest. This feels like we're in a very odd season, both politically, mm-hmm. but also I mean, in terms of not just theology, but like ecclesiology, missiology, it feels like so much of the soil of the church has been churned up and not all of it good for sure. But I just, I find so many people asking really important, really poignant questions and two things I want to tackle. Uh, the first is this article from Melvet Magazine by Hillary Moore. The headline simply reads, is your Christianity a sword? or a shield. If we have time, we're going to get to this quote by Richard Rohr that my friend Brad Briscoe posted. But uh, why don't you get us into this relevant article first? Yeah, I never thought about it. It says,
1: in the law, there's a concept of interpretation where an individual law can be used either as a sword or as a shield. A law is used as a sword when it's weaponized, used to hurt people or denigrate the law itself. Law is used as a shield when it is employed to help people, protect them, or fortify the integrity of the law in general. We choose how we interpret the law as sword or a shield. And often it is to our benefit to use it as a weapon to defend ourselves and our ways of life from uh, question, criticism or, God forbid, change like the law. Christianity can also be used as a sword or a shield. Mm -hmm. And we Christians get to choose how we use it. I'll just pause there. That's. Uh, that's really convicting to think about. I never really thought of a law, right? You can, a law can be a weapon. A law can be a shield. uh, It can protect, it can injure, it can be a weapon. Uh, And to say that, you know what, our Christianity is the same way, can be a sword or a shield. And a lot of people are asking that question right now with Uh the signs we saw at the Capitol and who was there or other things. Uh, I think this is, uh, it's not something I thought of, sword or shield, our faith. I think it's an important question.
0: Well, and it's also interesting because if you like really grew up steeped in like, Christian youth group culture, you know, we've talked about sword drills, right? Sword drill would be, remind me if I'm correctly here, if I'm remembering correctly, someone would shout a passage and whoever could flip to that passage in your Bible quickest won the sword drill. So the, you know, the Bible in that regard is a a sword. So I could see how the association there could be, I don't know, a direct link for a lot of people. And um, well, let me just read, let me read this roar quote. And then see if it ties in at all to what you were just saying. So Richard Rohr, uh, he wrote, Christianity is a lifestyle, a way of being in the world that is simple, nonviolent, shared, inclusive, and loving. We made it, however, into a formal established religion in order to avoid the demanding lifestyle itself. One could then be warlike, greedy, racist, selfish, and vain at the highest levels of the church and still easily believe that Jesus is, quote, my personal Lord and Savior. The world has no time for such silliness anymore. The suffering mm-hmm. on earth is too great. So that kind of tied with what you were alluding to, at least some of the violence, not only currently, but throughout history that we've mm-hmm. seen enacted in the name of Jesus. I even think of, you know, Constantine when when he became a Christ follower and then in turn, like all of his armies did, there's a story I heard recently about, when they would be bat, when these uh, soldiers would be baptized they would uh, hold their sword and arm up out of the water to baptize their whole body except for their sword swinging (laughs) arm so that they could still justify (laughs) like slaying people in battle and i'm thinking all right well we don't really at least here we don't really use swords so much anymore but don't we kind of treat social media a little bit like Mm. the thing that we haven't baptized Mm -hmm. or that group of friends or my politics like well yeah i have yeah i'm a jesus person but i don't i don't let that mix with you know how I vote or how I love my neighbor. Like we were talking about in the first segment. So yeah, I'd, I'd love to know how you grapple with some of this.
1: Yeah, that that quote is really convicting from uh, from Richard Rohr, because I think we see it around us. Right. And I see it in my own life. It's a lot easier to call yourself Christian than to live as a Christ follower. <laughs> like, <there's, laughs> yes, One's yeah. a lot easier than the other. And that's why, you know, you like to parse words about whether we're a Christian nation or this and that. But to be a Christian is to be a Christ follower. And, Christ, and Jesus laid out a very specific ways of how we're to treat other people, how we're to view ourselves, how we're to live in this world, who we're to be for. Uh, and so it becomes this uh, this dissonance when when you see in the name of Jesus, people like uh, Richard Rohr says here being warlike, greedy, racist, selfish or vain at the highest levels of the church. Uh, and he he says how, you know, it comes down to just as Jesus, my personal savior, as opposed to how I live and treat other people. But going back to the original article is it, I, I don't think to be a Christ follower. uh and if we're using our Christianity as a sword, as a weapon uh, to tear down others and this or that, we really do have to ask ourselves a lot of really hard questions that yeah. if we as churches are, are teaching that or if we as individuals are living that way, that as a Christian, I'm going to cut you down. I'm going mm-hmm. to defeat you. You really got to kind of open up your Bible again. Look at how Jesus called us to live and ask yourself some really hard questions.
0: Well, I don't know if this perfectly relates but i was i was just thinking about it as you were talking so one of the things i i shared this somewhere a couple days ago um because there 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 is a need especially within the church for for difficult words right Mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. to sometimes have to go toe-to-toe with people like that's still really important and part of what i wrote was when confronting someone do you come with a hatchet or a scalpel they both cut but only one of them cuts to heal Mm -hmm. and Maybe it's because I just had surgery on my knee yesterday, but I'm thinking about, wow, what an image that is. Because if they had had gone after what they need to do with a hatchet, like I probably wouldn't be doing the show today, right? But because a scalpel was used, it was very, very precise. It's still cut. It still hurts. There's still going to be some recovery time. But the intention of the cut was to bring healing, not to do damage. Does that sound Mm -hmm. like that might be a helpful, I don't know, lens or framework to look through? When we need to have tough conversations or to do difficult things? I think it's a real good imagery. You've used that one before, and, and I think it really does work
1: because, like you said, they both cut, but one cuts for one purpose, another cuts for a separate purpose. And when you use one for the other, it doesn't work. And so, right. uh, yeah, this idea, none of these are calls by Jesus to, you know, hey, just let people walk all over you or just let people. Uh, you know, don't ever have a hard conversation with someone. But, but the question is, what's our posture in it? And 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 what's uh, what's just even our mm, our general posture towards the people around us, right? And just what what is uh, what do other people see when they see the church? Like she mm-hmm. goes on to say here, Hillary Moore is the author. She says these are dark times. These dark times are an opportunity for Christians to be a light, to unify in Christ's love, not just with each other. But especially with others and with those we perhaps don't think deserve it. After all, isn't that what Christ did for us? Give us undeserving grace and love. And she goes on to say, we don't have to be hateful. We don't have to be divisive. We don't have to use our faith as a sword. Can we step down from our comfortable, non-introspective, self-righteous pedestals to walk humbly with those labeled criminal, immoral, wrong? Uh, And she goes on to say this is exactly what the nation and the world needs. And so, again, Mm -hmm. it's not a call to be like meek and just kind of hide away and let people walk up. But she's saying, no, this is more about how do I treat the people who may not deserve to be treated well? It was like Dave's article to be at the beginning of the show. We talked about uh, the neighbor who's unlovable, who's hard to love. What's our posture towards people like that? How about our political, quote unquote, opponents, Uh, people of other faiths or of no faith at all? Like, do we go at them to cut them down and win? Or is there a different way that Jesus taught us uh, to interact, to love and deal with people like that?
0: I would agree with all of that, except for the fact that I do think that Jesus is pro meekness. If, yeah. If that, at, that's if that's, in, that's that. in an important part of the Bible. <laughs> 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 it's so funny. It came out. I was like, mm, maybe wrong. <laughs> well, I, I, I think therein lies part of the tension though, right? Like there is a, a certain kind of like, wow. Uh, a Western pride or strength that like, yeah, we're not meek. Like, well, I mean, when you look at the Beatitudes, a part of the Sermon on the Mount, the most important sermon ever preached, in my opinion, uh, blessed are the meek. What does that mean? What does that mean for us in light of everything that you were saying? Like, all right, how do I not be a doormat, but still embrace this divine benediction of meekness? I don't know. Mm -hmm. I think think it's a really tricky, really important conversation. And uh, like always, both of these things are up at our Facebook page. And we would love to know what you think. Coming up next, though, and probably for the first half or so of the next hour, I want to talk a little politics, but from a bit of a different perspective. How do we kind of engage going forward in a way that is still faithful in a lot of ways to what Brian was just saying? How do we actually be Christ followers in a, a world like the one that we're occupying? That's all coming up next here in the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, how do we actually be Christ followers in a, a world like the one that we're occupying? You're listening to The Common Good. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. I mentioned at the beginning of the uh, first hour, I did have surgery yesterday. So not only am I like a little drugged up right now, mm-hmm. but they also, Brian, I don't know if this is TM- TMI, but they, because it was on the back of my knee, so I would have to be face down when they put me under. So they had to intubate me, and I've never, really? I've never been intubated before. And uh, so my throat's quite sore. Mm. So when they were, te- they told me this like seconds before they brought me into the operating room. I was like, I speak for a living. Is that going to be fine? And they're like, That's fine. <laughs> Breathe on this. So I'm like, Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh no. A lot of, a lot of clearing my throat, a lot of muting and unmuting my mic today. But uh, hopefully it's not too distracting. Um, I wanted to share this post. So we've had. Aaron Nequist on the show before Mm -hmm. and Aaron Nequist, if you're not familiar, he, well, he's a fellow Judson alum. He served uh, Mars Hill with Rob Bell for a while. He was at Willow Creek for a while. He started what's called The Practice that met in the chapel at Willow Creek and was um, connected in some kind of ways. He's married to Shawna Nequist and uh, he's got a book called The Eternal Current. He's been on the show before and he's really outspoken. He's he's, uh, pretty unabashed about his politics and his theology, and I think m- most would say at first blush, pretty left-leaning, progressive in in everything that he says. I think still very pastoral, very insightful. Um, and I say all that so that there's some context for what I'm going to have Brian read mm-hmm. because I I don't know. I just I really appreciated the posture of what he had to say here, especially given you know if you follow him online, you know, like oh man, he is he is predominantly quite left, quite progressive. And so that, I think, makes what he writes here all the more interesting. So with that, Mm -hmm. I'm going to have Brian read the Facebook post. It's not very long. And then uh, and then we'll talk about it.
1: Yep. Aaron Nequist writes, the inauguration was one of the most overtly Christian national events I've ever seen. As I keep reflecting on it, I feel both resonance and discomfort. Here's why. On one hand, as a Christian. I absolutely love the way they prayed and talked about faith. I love that their Christian language was focused on the common good and the least of these rather than promising Christian power. I love the way they embodied so many Christian values as they talked about our country and future. There was much to admire and so many reasons to be hopeful, and yet I was pretty uncomfortable by the blending of the Christian faith and the American civic religion. Even though this articulation of Christianity resonates with my own faith, I don't want to see it equated with patriotism or the myth that we're a Christian nation. Can you imagine being a Muslim American during the inauguration or a Jewish American or an American who has been traumatized by the Christian church? I want our politicians to be Christ-like and put Jesus's words into practice because I believe that is the best way for humanity to flourish, especially the poor and the oppressed. But I don't want to replace a conservative Christian supremacy with a progressive Christian supremacy. And then he asks the best Facebook question there can be. (laughs) And I'm going to pose it to you, Ian. Thoughts? (laughs) What do you think?
0: Man, I think think there's some real wisdom to that. I think what he said there at the end, I don't want to replace a conservative Christian supremacy with a progressive Christian supremacy. I don't know why I've not heard a lot of progressives articulated quite that pointedly and probably not a lot of conservatives either to be fair, but what, I don't know what he's articulating here. It would be easy. Let me just say this for someone like Aaron to have watched the inauguration and to just cheer unflinchingly to everything that happened, right? Like some of the pushback that I got, even I posted, "Madam Vice President, historic," right? Because mm-hmm. um, I think that's a significant. It's a significant moment in history: a female woman of color vice president. No matter how you slice it, that's that's a big deal. And then, of course, you know, some of the comments were a little inevitable about her. Uh, policies on abortion and women's rights. And, you know, and I I try to navigate those as best you can on Facebook. But like, well, yeah, I don't, I, there's a lot of her policies that trouble me. It doesn't make this moment any less historic. Uh, but even that could be – I could get it. You know, we're pastors and we have a radio show. And so sometimes people can read into, you know, our excitement or our discouragement or whatever. So for Aaron to say, hey, ah." Uh, Having this pendulum swing entirely the other way is maybe also not the goal. That doesn't necessarily look any more like Jesus. So if, I don't know. There, there's a, And the comments on his his post are, are pretty fascinating because a bunch of people are agreeing. A bunch of people are not agreeing, as you can imagine. Um, I appreciated it. He's also like a friend. So there's a, there's that part of it. I'm like, yeah, I just appreciate it knowing some of his own heart. But I yeah, what do you think of it?
1: Yeah, I do get it, and so you know when I watch the inauguration and Garth Brooks is singing Amazing Grace, I'm you yeah. know I'm getting chills. Like I'm like yes, like and I too like Aaron Nequist here believe uh, that our, we want our politicians to be Christ-like and put Jesus's words into action. That we believe that's the best way for flourishing and and understanding that you know we're a by most accounts, still a majority Christian, at least in name nation and have been, you know, that's kind of our heritage. You understand why there's a lot of Christian language and, uh, you know, swearing on, on a Christian Bible and this, and that my, my thing has always been since we started the show, you and I've had this talk about, you know, whether it be, uh, being able to, you know, prayers in schools or teaching the Bible in schools or doing this and that, my thing has always been like, Hey, as long as you're okay, when somebody who's not of your faith, uh, is bring something different because we do have freedom of religion. So, you know, if, you know, we hire, you know, we have a, uh, you know, an atheist president and and he decides to change the inauguration up. I I do. I, I, you have to understand that that's fair game. If we're going to allow the, you know, uh, Joe Biden's Christian faith or whatever else it might be. Like we we hmm. we really want it to be Christian when we're Christian. And then when we start talking about the other ones, it gets really uncomfortable. And so, uh, you know, I think I, I could totally see where he's coming from because I loved it. I was like, man, this is great. I, I want to sing Amazing Grace with everybody and I want to talk about, you know, living out who God has called us to be. But I totally get, and uh I I also wouldn't have the guts to post what he posted. And so um or or the uh succinctness to say what he did. And so I, I do think we have to be careful because a lot of progressives said, oh, we just had this conservative Christian supremacy and spr- swinging it the other way, I think, is dangerous. While at the same time, we as the church want to proclaim Christ and we want to see people come to Christ. We want to see our our nation uh, to embrace the ways of Jesus. The question is, what's it look like from the top, from the government? And that's where it gets certainly sticky.
0: So, so you mentioned um, courage in there, right? Is that the word you used? I wouldn't have the courage. To post something like this, what about this, in, in your opinion, from your vantage point, required courage to say?
1: Yeah, and I'm not even saying I agree with all of it, but I what I would say is the courage part comes, and this is where you're more like him than I am. Uh you even said earlier, you know, I, I posted that about the vice president and I knew there'd be some blowback. For me, when it gets to I knew there'd be some blowback, I'm like, <laughs> nope, I'm done. Nope, why post it? Why post it? Yeah. Uh and he had to have written this going, not only do I know there's blowback, but I'm excited for the conversation, right? I'm excited yeah. to put this right. out here. And so if this is what he believes strongly, and I think it's well reasoned and well thought out, to then put it out there. Uh, it it complicates your day, right? And so, and I think he wanted that, that he put that out there to invite that blowback and that push, that discussion, not just blowback, uh, that discussion. I do think it's really important, specifically for Christians, because we've always talked about being a Christian nation and this and that, for us to wrestle with. uh, What does it mean as a country? Like freedom of religion, what's it look like as a nation? We don't have a national religion. So things like the inauguration or things like, what other? Else? What? What does it mean that not everybody's Christian? And what does it mean for our nation? And we can ha- we can question that without questioning that the church loves Jesus and we love Jesus sure. and we're going. To, they don't have to be tied together.
0: Well, let's continue that train of thinking, Brian. From Scott Saul's friend of the show, he wrote a blog just yesterday. We have a new president. A Christian response that's coming up next year on the Common Good on AM 1160 Hope for Your Life. Well, Howdy ho, neighbors. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Thank you so much for joining us. I say it all the time, but it does, it really means a lot to us. We know that your time is valuable and that you would give any of it to engage with us in any way, shape, or form. Uh, for starters, it's miraculous to me that yeah, like we get messages sometimes from people who are like, I've never missed a show. And you're like, mm-hmm. really? I feel like I've missed shows <laughs> and I've I'm so on, and I'm on them. Yeah, that's... Yes. Amazing. So honestly, truly, thank you for your support and your love and your encouragement and engaging in whatever way that you do. I really have two articles here, Brian, both by friends of the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, Scott Sauls wrote one called We Have a New President, A Christian Response. And then Jim Dennison wrote President Biden and Amazing Grace, a biblical template for praying for our leaders and nation. I want to start with Sauls. And if we have time, we'll get to Dennison. But if not, I think that might still be relevant next week. So... Uh, Maybe we'll move to then. But what did Scott Sauls have to say?
1: And I think this is such an important conversation yesterday when you weren't here. I spent the whole first segment talking about what's it even look like to pray for your president, whether you voted for him or not. Like, I just think this is so important for us as Christians to wrestle with and get our arms around, especially as a new administration comes in. So Sauls writes, perhaps you're thrilled about the country's future under Joe Biden. Perhaps you're dreading it and feel we may have come to the end of the world. Most likely you're feeling somewhere in the middle. But whoever you are. There are political leaders with whom you disagree strongly. Maybe it's our new president. Maybe it's his predecessor. Maybe it's your governor, your state senator, or your mayor. But whoever it is, you're faced as a Christian with the tension of respecting and supporting persons in authority whom you find difficult to respect and support. If you scroll through your social media for two minutes, you're sure to spot some sort of rant uh, about a political leader or party. Social media has become the go-to place to mock and insult those authority figures we disagree with. While we can and should feel strongly about different political and society and social issues, as Christians, we're called also to respond to any and all authority with respect. And rather than bucking the system, sticking it to the man—I love that saying—or making—I per- just picture <laughs> Scott Sauls being like, "Sticking it to the man," uh, or you making personal, that? yeah, I can, or making <laughs> personal insults and caricatures. Christians are taught in the Bible to respond to authority with honor. This starts with honor in God who holds authority over the whole universe and the hearts of kings and rulers in his hands. One of the chief ways we honor God is in the way we respond to those he places in authority over us. Whether we agree or disagree with our authorities, showing honor and respect is presented in the Bible as a non-negotiable. In showing honor and respect, we also honor and respect God, who in his own wisdom and for his own purposes ordains who will lead and who will follow. What do you think of that last paragraph there, Ian, that uh, whether we agree or disagree about showing honor and respect being a non-negotiable here,
0: yeah, honor and respect—that's um, a—that's a tricky one. I think, I think I'm more comfortable at first blush with respect than honor. To me, I think, uh, man, I might get some pushback on this one. I think honor is maybe more earned then the respect one in this regard, when talking about elected officials, maybe that applies for both. To be honest, I think of, you know, the civil disobedience that the early church was a part of was still called to, I think, honor, respect at the very least pray for mm-hmm. leaders, many of whom were, as we know, very corrupt. I think of even, you know, we just celebrated, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. day and he was regularly arrested for peaceably eating in a restaurant that he wasn't permitted to. Um, so yeah, he was, there was civil disobedience, but he also quietly went to jail when they said it's time to go to jail. You know what I mean? Like there's a, I don't know if that's a fair comparison. So it was like, yes, I'm going to expose some of the, the corruption at work here, but I'm also not going to, I'm not going to punch you when you try to arrest me. I'll, I'll peaceably, you know, what I mean? it's a very unique, if, I don't know, in some ways, maybe I'm overselling it. That feels like third way of Jesus type stuff. Like, all yeah. right, I'm not going to, I'm not going to pretend that me not being allowed to eat in this restaurant is okay. Or that I think it's okay with God. Um, but I'm also not going to fight whatever system right now is deciding that I belong in jail for the night. So, yeah, I would say honor and respect, but maybe with an asterisk, I do think that there's there's a lot of corruption in politics. And to just simply say that we're to, like, blindly honor and respect anyone and everything that happens behind those walls. I don't think that's what Saul's saying, to be I honest, either. but yeah. I, I think that th- there's some important caveats there.
1: And one of the ways we honor people, uh, our leaders, is by praying for them and that 's what
0: yes, uh, right. you know,
1: the Bible calls us to and so Saul 's going to talk about biblically what 's it look like, but I want to jump down to he says, here are a few thoughts about how we can retreat from the spin and rhetoric and instead return to more of a new testament approach so he 's going to give us uh, three or four here it looks like four uh, ideas about how we can move from spin and rhetoric and instead return to a more New Testament approach, which I think is so important, especially Uh, We know a lot of people in the church world, the Christian world, didn't vote for the current president. And so uh, the question is, how do we go to then a New Testament approach of honor, respect, prayerfulness? And he says, number one, show respect for authorities with whom you disagree. Examples fill the scripture. In spite of being put in prison for crimes he didn't commit, Joseph treated Pharaoh and the Egyptians guards with honor. And so for the sake of time, uh, Saul talks about David. And then he says this at the end, he says, these are some helpful models for us as we consider how to engage political discussions. And as we think about how to relate to authorities whose policies and demeanors get under our skin. So again, that show respect for authorities, even with whom you disagree.
0: Hmm. So what do you, how do you live that out then? You're, you know, you and I are, are pastors. Um Let's take it even out of the realm of pastor for the person who's like, well, I don't, I don't work in politics. I'm, I don't even consider myself all that political. So I'll obey speed limits and pay my taxes. And that's, that's about all there is for me to, you know, to comply with or not comply with. Like what, what would you say to that person who's like, eh, I don't, I don't even know that this is really a conversation that I, I have very often with myself.
1: Yeah, I mean, in this day and age we live in, how do we even talk about our our leaders? How do we, you know, is it in a respectful way? And I know that could go, you know, and I think you brought up a good one that got me thinking about how even Martin Luther King he disobeyed civil disobedience, but then when he got arrested, he went to jail. Yeah, and right. I, I think that's powerful, I, and I hadn't really thought of that, and so I think there's lots of ways we could show respect while still disagreeing, uh, and and uh, and and I think on us as Christ followers, I think that's important.
0: Yeah. Do you think there's any aspect of this? I don't know. I don't want to get too far into the weeds in this because I I do agree with a lot of what Saul's is saying. If it is an issue of some kind of egregious injustice, would number one still apply? Show respect for authorities with whom you disagree. Someone listening might be thinking "Mm, this is more than a disagreement, this is a sanctity of life issue, this mm-hmm. is a human dignity issue, it's not like a, well, agree to disagree, you know what I mean, like there's and again, that's not the example at all that he gives with Pharaoh and the Egyptian, like sure. those, were, sure. those were intense circumstances for sure it does sometimes feel like the general advice or counsel can be like, hey, you should still respect him, even if you guys don't see eye to eye on this, you're like, well like you and I, let, let me think of something that we you and I both tend to agree on is the death penalty, you know, mm-hmm. like, well agree to disagree on this one well that agree to disagree could mean dozens of people's lives lost you know it's not just that it's not a nebulous ethereal construct that we're disagreeing on or some principle you know what i mean like that's detached from reality it has very real very real implications you know what do you what do you do then
1: that's hard man I, i would say the best we can say probably is to is to disagree and fight and do everything that we can to uh to get that changed and. (laughs) This is going to sound so light and do it in a respectful way, uh, and do it with the respect. But yeah, I don't think this is a call to go, well, you know, my leader, he says death penalty is okay. I guess I got to go with it. You know, I I don't think that's what Saul's is doing here. Uh, I think that's certainly a posture issue, but yeah, I I don't think this is, uh, saying don't ever fight for what you think is right.
0: Yeah, I like how he ends this. He says, um, For whom do I feel greater affection? Number one, people who agree with my politics but don't share my faith or Mm -hmm. people who share my faith but don't agree with my politics. If it's the former instead of the latter, we may be rendering unto Caesar what belongs to God, and that can't be a good thing. I've heard him say Mm -hmm. something like that a number of times, and I think that's at the very least a really, really important thing for all of us to grapple with. I kind of want to keep it. In the political realm, if you'll allow me, Brian, don't worry, we'll wrap up the show and the week with some good news, but let's kind of stay in this particular vein from Christianity Today. How can Christians stand against abortion during the Biden administration? That's coming up next year on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. I want to kind of continue... This may be the most back-to-back-to-back political we've been on the show, mm-hmm. but not really. Only It's kind of like political light. So there's this uh, this article of Christianity Today. The headline reads, How can Christians stand against abortion during the Biden administration? It is also uh, National Sanctity of Human Life Day today. Mm-hmm. That was declared by President Trump just a few days ago. That was kind of one of his last acts as president, wasn't it? That must have been. I believe so. Yeah. 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 So so this is uh, – a particularly timely conversation for today right now, but it's also something that has obviously been deeply enmeshed in the dialogue for the last year and then certainly the last number of decades. So uh, why don't you get us into the article and then uh, we'll unpack it a bit.
1: Yeah, and it's also important day today is the anniversary of Roe versus Wade. So a lot of articles you see right now and and a lot of thoughts. And quite frankly, you know, President Biden uh, came out just today Him and Kamala Harris, Vice President Harris, with a tweet uh, about Roe versus Wade and very much came out going, hey, we're going to be we're going to push things forward. Like there was a lot of talk that for those of us who are very much against abortion was uncomfortable. Uncomfortable is probably not even the right word. It was troubling. And so the question that Christianity Today asks is how can Christians stand against abortion during the Biden administration? Advocates offer strategies to uphold the sanctity of the unborn, even without the support of Congress. And the White House, it says, though reversing restrictions on abortion access was not among more than a dozen executive orders President Biden's signed in his first day in office, it's only a matter of time before the new administration follows through on its pro-choice platform, while pro-life groups cheered efforts by the Trump administration to stand against abortion. Uh, Biden is due to overturn the Mexico City policy, which bars the government from funding organizations outside the U.S. that perform abortions in the coming days and weeks, according to the White House press secretary. So what can Christians do to continue promoting the sanctity of the unborn while Biden is in office? As groups opposed to abortion come together to mark the anniversary of Roe versus Wade and the National Sanctity of Human Life Day under the new administration, the bottom line is everything is different. While measures like Mexico City policy get reversed and reinstated, advocates like uh, Mallory Quigley, vice president of the Susan B. Anthony list, uh, consider Trump, quote, the most pro-life president in history. Uh, It goes on to talk about the things that they did and they go on to say similarly, Biden represents a particularly ardent stance in favor of abortion access. During the campaign, Biden withdrew his support for the Hyde Amendment which bans the use of federal funds for abortion except in cases of rape, incest, or life-threatening circumstances. He also pledged to codify Roe versus Wade into federal law and restore federal funding to Planned Parenthood. He did that on Twitter day. He said that that was the case. goes on to talk about Kamala Harris, who was one of the – she got a perfect score uh, for her pro-choice views when she was in the Senate – uh, and so it goes on and on. And it's going to say, what do we do? What do we do? But, Ian, you know, I wonder, as somebody, you and I, you know, there are certain things we agree on and certain things we don't. But I, from our show, you can tell we agree uh, on, on just uh, on abortion. We have similar stances on this. Uh, do you, what is your level of uneasiness around this exact, uh, just this topic going from uh, into an administration where the president and vice president have been so vocally pro-choice?
0: Well, you know, we've referenced the uh, the Sky Jathani video a number of times. That got passed around, it seems like, a a billion times. And I know that there's been some pushback on some of these findings, but there seems to be a decent body of work that supports that, you know, abortions have actually gone down to a greater degree under Democratic presidents over the last 15 years than under Republican ones. Some might disagree with those numbers or those findings. That's where it starts to get... Tricky Because I'm not a reporter, I'm not a statistician, but I I like what Denise Harrell says here. She's the uh, senior counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom. Says Christians should stand up and defend the ability of pro-life advocates to speak. Women who are considering abortion often do so because they've been told they don't have any real options. Pregnancy centers provide real hope and practical support to women who often feel they have neither. And Christians should come alongside them, offering the same. Mm-hmm. That has been my very limited experience. I have yeah. mentioned on the show before. I think that you know my mom was uh, the president to our local uh, metro right to life choices, and that's just been something that since I was, gosh, seven or eight, like I feel like I've had a bit of a front row seat. I mean, I guess as much as like a as a you know white man can, but um there is something to that though that, and a lot of the organizations we've worked with at the station and on the show have mm-hmm. echoed the same thing like oftentimes women just they if they feel like they don't have any real options so if if that is as big an issue as all these sources are saying then does the church have a unique responsibility or unique opportunity even to step into that and it's the article goes on to talk a whole lot more about different policies and who's mm-hmm. voting what way and, and a lot of it can get really complicated for sure. But like, that's the thing that I'm really, that's really resonating with me. W- women, for whatever reason, and it's a myriad of reasons, feel like they don't have any options. Does the church have unique opportunity to be like light in life under those circumstances where someone might be feeling like this is their only option going forward? That's right. Uh, you know, War,
1: uh, what's his name here? Roland Warren, president of CareNet. He he goes on to point out something that I had never heard. He said he cites uh, the statistic that says two in five abortions that occur uh, happen for women who were attending church at least monthly at the time of their abortions, and he uses wow. the stat to say to emphasize the need. He says for greater support and for discipleship that it's not just about the federal government. It's important. We should be, um, you know uh advocating for and and you know strict you know laws and and having these conversations we also need to have conversations about poverty because it's clear that poverty equals more abortions uh but also he's saying that, that our churches need to take up this we can't just be hoping that the government waves some sort of wand here but that the church on a grassroots level can be having these conversations this is part of the discipleship process uh, to be able to have these conversations. I never heard that stat before to focus on the family. I guess it comes from them. Two in five abortions occurring, uh, in women who had been in church within the last month. And so there's a real opportunity, not only there for the church to teach, uh, but more so what you were just saying for the church to love and support and uplift, uh, so that women feel like they have a support system. Uh, even if they don't feel like they have a support system in the government or whatever, but they feel like they have that support system, that community within their church yeah. that says, hey, we're here for you. Uh, we love you. We're going to support you and that that might swing uh, that might save some babies lives. I, I do appreciate how this article puts it at the uh, at the feet of the church and of the Christ follower.
0: Yeah. So Roland Warren, president of CareNet, the Evangelical Pregnancy Center Network, said we often talk about defunding Planned Parenthood. But the easiest way to do this is by Christians not having abortions. Christians have the power to defund Planned Parenthood regardless of what the Biden-Harris administration does. I've, I've never heard it put quite that oh. boldly, that bluntly. And I wonder if there's a, a correlation to some of the stats that you were sharing there. At, at the very least, like we want to recognize this is an incredibly complicated discussion, one charged with a lot of emotion. There's a lot of politicizing around it. The only thing that I'm, I guess, really confident walking away from this whole article saying is church, like, let's get to work. Like we have a responsibility yes. and this can't simply be something that we pat ourselves on the back or we wash our hands of because of how we voted or didn't vote or who is or isn't in office. Like there's still there's just so much to be done. And if, you know, early in the article, if that assertion is correct, that like the vast majority of women are choosing this option because they feel like they don't they don't have any other options then how can we strategically and creatively come alongside these moms and these families and in these communities and do the work of the church? I just think that's as important now as ever. And uh, we know this is a highly charged issue. We would love to know what you think. This article along with everything else is up on our Facebook page at common good talk. And with that, we're going to land the plane, not just for today, but for this week with some good news that's coming up next here on the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for some good news! Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good for the last time today, but fret not, we'll be back again on Monday from 4 to 6 p.m. and every weekday from here until eternity. And uh, before we land the plane, we have a segment that we've been doing called uh, Some Good News, which is honestly no agenda there. It's just stories and articles we found that we thought, yeah, <laughs> That feels good. That's some good news. It can be easy to just consume the negative or the terrifying or the divisive. So we thought, yeah, let's uh, let's make a habit of ending some shows with some good news. Speaking of good news, today is my youngest son Redmond's second birthday. I Woo-hoo. it's my wife took him to go get like a big boy haircut. And I know I like for anyone who's had kids before, this is not new news, but when they he had this like big moppy curly mess going on. And he came back, and I was like, are you ready to drive a car? Like, he just aged, like, 15 (laughs) years. It's, oh, man. And I don't like admitting all the time that I'm that sentimental, but, like, watching, oh, man. My wife strung up all these, you know, photos of, like, his first year, you know, month by month. And then I'm, like, looking at this boy walk in with, like, a flannel shirt and, like, a fly new haircut. I'm like, (laughs) <laughs> my boy, uh, boy. My boy. Uh, so anyway, that's awesome. Yeah. Happy birthday, Redman. We love you so much. And uh you are such a joy to us and our family, even though you are chaos in human form in so many ways. <laughs> really such is. a
1: fun age. Such oh my gosh. Age. You're
0: telling me, man. Uh all right. So some good news. I got a bunch of articles here, and uh per usual I'm just gonna let Brian Fromm choose which one he wants to go with first.
1: Yeah, you gave me one here from the Christian headline, so not even from the Good News Network. It says this Pulse Founder says over a hundred thousand people surrendered to Christ through the ministry's efforts in twenty twenty. That's a huge number. That's nuts. Evangelist That's nuts. Nick Hall, the founder of the millennial millennial led evangelism movement, Pulse contended that more than hundred thousand people gave their lives to Christ. He explained to CBN news, the prayer link that more young people are drawing closer to God in light of today's political atmosphere. He said, what I'm hearing from young believers is really a desire to come together around the need to share Jesus and to share the gospel. There's all sorts of opinions about all sorts of things, all sorts of ideas, yet there is one thing that changes everything. And so I'm seeing people praying, fasting and really believing that man, no matter what happens, we know that God is in control, and he need to he needs to be trusted uh, and we need to trust him now more than ever and so it goes on to talk about the year and all the difficulties and how people were open millennials to open to the gospel man, a hundred thousand people that is that is some good ministry
0: right there that's a big deal, man. all right this next one is one that I would put in the category of like inventions I would never even think of, and mm-hmm. i'm I'm just so impressed when it happens, especially via something like TikTok. So here's the headline. Uh, TikTok users rallied to design a better pill bottle for people with Parkinson's. Uh, Necessity has long been the mother of invention, but thanks to cutting edge technology and the power of social media, the leap from inspiration to reality can happen almost overnight. If you doubt it, just ask Jimmy Choi. Choi is an amazing athlete. Uh, He also suffers from Parkinson's disease. Diagnosed at age 27 with early onset symptoms, Choi uses fitness to battle his illness. The four season veteran of American Ninja Warrior has an impressive record that includes one ultra marathon, 16 marathons, a hundred half marathons and counting plus numerous 5Ks, 10Ks, and triathlons. On top of that, he's also raised close to $500,000 for Parkinson's research, which he considers his greatest accomplishment. In addition to his TV appearances, Choi is best known for showcasing feats of athleticism via social media. While dealing with the big stuff, rarely phases him. Little things like something as simple as opening a prescription bottle have left him, what's that word, stymied? Yes. Stymied, okay. In a recent TikTok video, he shared that frustration with his followers for Choi's online team. It was tantamount to firing a starting pistol and off they went on a race to find a working solution. I won't read the rest of the article, but mm-hmm. via that video from TikTok, a bunch of people got to work and apparently like invented a solution to this problem that he was having in his life that apparently a lot of people with Parkinson's have. And it's now going to like change the game for how they can get access to their medication. I lo- I just love stories like this. Yeah, that's an awesome story. And my wife and I were just
1: talking over lunch about how ridiculous TikTok is. So redeemed it a little yeah, bit. Yeah, right. There. See, there you go. Uh Next one. When a student couldn't pay tuition fees, prison inmates rallied to raise thirty two thousand dollars to help. Come on. Uh Cy Newsome Green was a high school freshman when his world pretty much fell apart. His dad suffered a heart attack and needed a transplant. His mom was in an accident that impaired her vision. Wow. Both parents lost their jobs without their income. His future at the Palma School, the private all boys Catholic school he attended, was in peril. But Green was about to get a helping hand he'd never expected from an unlikely source. A group of inmates at California's Soledad Prison pooled their income from working jobs as prisoners. And with a little outside help, they raised most of Green's tuition to get him all the way through his sophomore year to graduation. Wow. All told, the sum was a whopping 32 thousand dollars and the gesture was inspired by a book club and it's going to go on to say how these kids at this school do a book club at the prison that this kid was a part of but man a lot of times yo, know, you think oh prisoners what are you know uh they would that you know they're never going to help or whatever we all have these pictures from movies and stuff but to see like this high school kid serving in a prison and these prisoners raising this money is so inspiring it's uh, that's really that's a great
0: story Yeah, totally agree. All right. We got three minutes left for two stories. We can do it. We got it. We do. Uh, it. When pastor's bike was stolen, his response was to start a free bicycle repair service for people in need. I love, I love that posture, that response Mm -hmm. for most people having property stolen feels like a violation. Robbie Pruitt admits when his mountain bike was swiped last September, he got mad, but soon enough, his emotions took a turn. After letting go of his anger and frustration, he found himself on a road to compassion instead. I see what they did there. A road to compassion. <laughs> Very nice. An avid biker, Pruitt's first priority was to replace his ride. But when he started bike shopping, he found the picking slim. The scarcity of inventory got him thinking, what if the lack of bikes was pandemic related? And what if the, uh, the person who would taken his had done so because they truly needed transportation to get to work? With that thought in mind, Pruitt, an assistant rector at the Church of the Holy Spirit in Leesburg, Virginia, came up with the plan and posted it to a local Facebook group. Pruitt offered to fix bikes free of charge for anyone who needed it. He also put out a call for unwanted bikes, which he would repair again for free and then donate to folks who could truly use them but didn't have the budget to buy a bike outright. The day the post went live, Pruitt wound up. Oh, boy. Wound up with an inventory of 30 used bicycles. The initial influx was followed by more than 500 queries from people who either had bikes to donate or that needed fixing. Soon after, by the end of 2020, Pruitt had refurbished more than 140 for donation or to be returned to their owners Mm -hmm. at about a 60 to 40 percent ratio. I won't read the rest of it. But again, this is the kind of this is the kind of move that I love because it was like not ever something that had popped into his mind until his bike was stolen, right? Like it was catalyzed by something less than desirable. And it led to something amazing. I am here for all of that.
1: Yeah, last one is a truly inspiring one. I saw this one on the Today Show the other day. Instead of charging women with shoplifting Mm -hmm. groceries, police officer buys $250 worth of food for family in need. In Massachusetts, a Somerset police officer responded to a shoplifting incident, but decided that the punishment didn't fit the crime. So he bought groceries for the suspects instead. It was five days before Christmas when Officer Matt Lima responded to Stop and Shop responding to a report of shoplifting. Upon his arrival, the officer learned that two women with two young children had not scanned all their groceries at the self-checkout line before exiting the store with numerous items not scanned. Lima took the two suspects aside and learned they'd fallen upon hard times and attempted to take additional groceries so they could provide a Christmas dinner for the two children. The mother of the children was not working and had some other family issues going on, and she had taken this for a Christmas dinner for her kids. Officer Lima served the two women notice not to trespass forms and refused to file criminal charges. His boss, Chief George McNeil, said the incident is a true testament of Officer Lima's great character. Officer Lima then purchased gift cards in the amount of two hundred and fifty dollars with his own money. So the women would be able to purchase groceries for the Christmas dinner at another stop and shop location. I mean, that's what else do you need to say? That is a uh, inspiring story of generosity and grace. Uh, What a beautiful story.
0: Yeah. And and maybe it sounds a little cliche, but I love ending shows with stories like that because it is a reminder, at least to me that, yeah, sometimes the world can feel like, gosh, there's so much going wrong and there's so much hurt, but like there's a need right where you're at. You're placed on purpose for a purpose, wherever you're at. And I hope the stories like that at the very least, Not just like make you feel good, but inspire you just to some course of action, some kind of good deed. You know, we're talking about Dave Ferguson's blessed book. We're going to have Dave and John on next week. Like, What are some ways that we can just be a blessing wherever God has us? I think that's always, always, always an important question to ask, especially in times like these. So we hope that those were encouraging and challenging to you as they were to us. Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.